Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. So this is Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Today we're doing it on a Wednesday evening, a day later than normal because we've been in Fukuoka, Japan for the last couple of days. How are you doing, Michael? I am super. We were traveling. You know, a lot of podcasts don't go on the road. Right. Exactly. We did go on the road. We were living on the road for out of suitcases. <laughs> yeah, I look, you know, we wanted to start this, you know, what are the best startup cities in Asia? Maybe not the, you know, with no judgmental sort of vision here, but just to find out what makes a city great. And I'll tell you what, you know, I think if we go through this step by step, there yeah. are some things that make Fukuoka way better than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because it was a bit of an eye opener, wasn't it? I mean, expectations and all that, we got there. We kind of learn a few things. We want to share those tonight, right? Yeah. I mean, I flew in on what, what day was it? Sunday? <laughs> I can't even remember anymore. It's like a bit of a blur. <laughs> but it, it is a bit of a blur. But I flew in on Sunday morning, you know, Sunday. kind of tried to get arranged to my hotel. And I couldn't check in right away, right? Right. But I arrived at like 10 o'clock in the morning. I couldn't check in until two hours later. So there was nothing else to do for me, really, except walk around the city. Yeah. Right, so it was a really great introduction for me. And what I found out on Sunday was there was a pretty robust subway system because I, I I actually ended up in Tianjin by subway, which I did not know existed actually before. And I've been in Fukuoka, who knows how many times. Yeah. Right. Um, and then I I came back to hotel, checked in and stuff, and I wanted to go back, but I just didn't feel like walking because I walked back. It's a two kilometer walk, which was nice. And then I got on a bus. There's a 100 yen, so a $1 basically loop bus that kind of loops around that central part of the city. And I thought that was pretty awesome too. And, and you know, the other thing I, I noticed was that just getting around the city was just simple. Yeah. And you could, no? you could walk if you had to, right? Yeah. Easy. In any direction, right? Yeah. I mean, it was super flat and it was walkable completely. And it seemed to me that there was like a – a little bit of a, what's the right word, a bicycle culture? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so even if you went downstairs. With a bike shop where you could pay with Bitcoin, right? I didn't even want to go there yet, but yeah. <laughs> exactly, we're like, jumping the gun here, but. No but, you, no, but you're right, and you bring up a good point. So like on Sunday afternoon, I was walking around, and again, I was a little bit tired, and I wanted to sort of take some pictures and kind of get a feel for what the vibe was in Fukuoka, right? And remember, like I said, I'd only ever been there you know, not for fun per se, but just like not for business for sure. Yeah. And I had never really looked at it as a place where I could do business or where people were getting business done. And generally I was there over New Year's, right, for Oshogatsu. And that meant that most things were closed anyway. So I really just spent time in and around the station and didn't really have as much knowledge about it as I might have. And frankly, you know, the first time I was there was back in 1997 or 1998 for a wedding for people that I, I didn't know and that I haven't seen since. So I really didn't know so much about it, and I'd never walked it alone. But when I was walking around, you're right. You know, we're there to find out how good it is for startups, and yet there I was thinking about, should I rent a bicycle? Should I keep walking? <laughs> because what was the weather like when we were there? Yeah, nice. It was nice. It was warm. Pleasant, pleasant, yeah. Well, this is all important, right? People are probably thinking, you know, what has this got to do with, you know, what makes a great startup city? We're, we're coming to this, isn't it? Because the lifestyle factor is something which right. is often not talked about, right? I mean, people talk about access to capital, access to networking events, access to talent, but lifestyle is a factor as well. So I guess we're going to go there and explore that a little as well and, and our observations from Fukuoka. 
Yeah, I mean, look, the bottom line is when you live in a place, you have to have a life there. And I think part of that is what is the lifestyle like? And that's kind of what I'm trying to talk about at the beginning. We can talk later, a little bit later about what is the access to capital like? What is the community like there, okay? Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think that's a really good point. But, but I didn't know all of these sort of little subtle things about it. And I thought it was really interesting. I walked into a bike shop because it had a big sign that said Bitcoin on it. Hmm. And I think I actually have a photograph of it, so we can post that later, actually. Um, I don't know if it said Bitcoin accepted here or Bitcoin taken or something, Bitcoin interested. I can't remember. But I just walked in and I started talking to the guy in the shop. And I, I sort of have this fallacy that, you know, if you're running a bicycle shop and you're the only guy working there, you must be the owner. Right, exactly. <laughs> right? I was wrong. Huh. But I still walked in and chit-chatted with the guy and I said, I, I noticed outside there was a Bitcoin sign. Now remember, you know, I live in Bangkok, right? And you live close close enough to Tokyo okay. for it to matter. I, I've not seen a Bitcoin sign. I have in Singapore, so yeah. I've seen a Bitcoin ATM but I've never seen a Bitcoin sign outside of a shop. Mm-hmm. And remember, I walk around Bangkok as well. I ride a scooter around Bangkok. And I live like in the midst of the startup community in Bangkok. I'm just trying to remember if I've ever seen one. I don't think I have. Right, But I walked inside to the guy. You know, I spoke to the guy, how much does it cost to rent a bicycle? So let's think about this, too. It was 1,000 yen, so $10 to rent a bicycle for a 24-hour period of time. That's like 300 Wow, bucks. that is cheap. It was super cheap. Yeah. Okay. And then I asked him, do you really take Bitcoin here? Like, what's the deal with the sign out there? And he said, yeah, the owner of this shop is very interested in Bitcoin. Right? And I was disappointed because I didn't actually get a chance to talk to the owner, but I just thought it was interesting. Mm. And I said to him, I said to the guy that was there, obviously not the owner, I said, do you own any Bitcoin? And he kind of smiled at me sheepishly and said, I don't. But the owner does. Right, that's why he's not here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's in the Bahamas. Right. You know, he's in the Caribbean. This he bought it. He bought it at four cents a, a coin. Right, right. When he was ta- that that sort of ten dollars a day for running a bike didn't look so stupid now, did it? No, it didn't. <laughs> and then I thought, shucks, I'm not giving a guy who's got like a lot of Bitcoin my money for renting a bicycle. I'm walking for the rest of the time. But again, it just it's just about the lifestyle there, right? Yeah, yeah. I thought the city was walkable. I thought it was super livable. Hmm. You small, know, and small as well. You know, it's kind of that. There seems I find there's like an optimum size for a city, right? And it seems to be like when it sort of gets to about a million, that seems to be the perfect size for livability. Yeah, you're right. I mean, 12 million or 8 million is just, it starts to get a little bit, just a little bit unruly. And I I don't think that's anybody's problem in particular. Yeah. Right. And this is going to be interesting for us because we'll also go to, we're going to be in Shanghai next week. Right. What's the population there? Like 20 million? 12, 15 million, whatever it is, it's huge. And whatever it is, it's probably, whatever the official number is, it's probably wrong. Yeah. Right, because <laughs> even in Bangkok, the official number is eight. I'm sure there are twelve million. Well, let's people. put it this way: you ain't cycling or walking around there, right? I don't think so. And to be fair, I don't. I, I have a bicycle in Bangkok, and it's not that hilly actually, but it's just not set up for bicycling. Yeah, I, I don't think so, and I don't think that's going to change soon either. And in reverse, I don't think you're going to get like I think we commented when we were talking to Toma and to Yasmin, like. There's no traffic. Hmm. Yeah, that's right. I didn't. Yeah, 
there's no rush hour. Yeah. Even, <laughs> now I, you I, say it, I realize it, right? You don't realize yeah. it when you're there because it's not there, right? So, wasn't there. Yeah, and and getting to the airport as well—that's the thing, <laughs> right? I mean, from the airport to Hakata, which is the main Shinkansen station, right? That was about four or five stops, and then to the center of town was another two stops. So you could be from the airport to town in what? 12, 15, 15 minutes, yeah? 15 minutes. So just as a point of reference, right, you make an, another really good point. So this morning I got on a plane from Fukuoka coming to Tokyo, and my flight was at 7 o'clock in the morning. That's what time the flight took off, right? Hmm. And I like to be there early, so I got to the airport at 5.30. No, I was there at 5.45. But I left my hotel at 5.30, and I'd asked them the night before just to be safe. How long should I expect it to take me to get to the airport? And the guy was really cute. He said to me, well, if there are no problems, and I'm thinking to myself, what kind of problem could there be? <laughs> right? Because my, again, my hotel was really close to the, to the train station. If there are no problems, you can be there in 10 minutes. And I just thought, wow. nah, it's just not going to happen. You know, that's, I like to call that sort of the real estate, um, the real estate lie. Yeah. Yeah. You know, how far am I from the station? 12 yeah, minutes. Yeah. yeah. Sure. But I literally, and I, so I looked at, I asked the guy when I got into the, um, the taxi this morning, what time is it? He said 526. And when I got to the airport, it was, it was, um, 535. Wow. It's under 10. I'd like to know. I mean, this is maybe if somebody's listening to that, they can tweet if they know, tweet us at Asia Tech Pod. If they know a city in the world of at least a million people where you can get from the center to the airport in 10 minutes or under. That's the challenge, right? Right. So, you know, I talk a lot about one of the great things about Bangkok is you have two airports that are really close. It's a 20-minute drive. I once took my mother to the airport, again, early in the morning, right? So similar situation. You know, I left the house at 4, and I was home at 4.40. That's 20 minutes there, 20 minutes back, including dropping somebody off. And I thought that was amazing. That's Suwanabu. Right. That's a big, you know, international airport. But this was literally nine minutes. It's crazy. And it's an international airport as well, right? It is. And I didn't take a highway. I'm just like on the roads. <laughs> it's just hard to explain how convenient it was. And I think, so let's talk a little bit about that in the context of a startup city, right? right. You're in Fukuoka. Fukuoka is probably the closest city in Japan. It's on the coast, right? So the, you know, the thing we were told was that the beaches are beautiful. Again, a little bit of lifestyle, but more in the fact that it's on the coast. Mm-hmm. And because it's on the coast, that means it's really close to the rest of Asia. Yep. Right? So let's say you want to get on a plane and go to the rest of Asia, but you're a startup based in Tokyo. Even Haneda itself. So I landed in Haneda this morning, and I timed it as well. And I did public transportation this morning just so I had an equivalent test, right? By the time I got off, my, I got off the plane at 840 I was on the monorail at 9 o'clock in the morning. It's only 20 minutes. It's not that far, right? And I got back to where I was going at 10.30. Hmm. And that's three trains, right? So I took the monorail to Ebisu. I don't know, two trains. Uh, no, three. I took the monorail to Ebisu. From, no, to, um, to I forget where, no, Hamasucho. Hamasucho to Ebisu on the Yamanote line. And then from Ebisu to Hiro on the Hibiya line. Okay, and then I just got into a taxi and went to the place where I was staying. But I did that on purpose because I really want to see how long it would take. So think about it. 
if you're a startup, right, you're not going to take a taxi or an Uber in Japan because it's just too expensive. Mm. But if you take public transportation, okay, again, from where I was staying in Fukuoka to the airport, two stops, Hakata, one stop, and then Kuko, the airport, yeah? And here, from getting off the plane to, to getting to here was like an hour and a half. Right. As opposed to 10 minutes. So that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, you talk about the whole transport setup. You take a city like Tokyo, which, you know, you talk about the greater Tokyo area, you've got, what, 20, 25 million people? Yeah, at least. And then, so, you know, if you have, for example, an event or a conference in town in the center of Tokyo, could be right near Tokyo Station. Yep. Or, you know, it could be further out, you know, like Big Side or Makahari Messi or whatever out in the east of Tokyo. But, you know, the thing is, it's like not everybody lives in the city, right? So those 25 million people, 23 million of them live outside of Tokyo, right, in the suburbs, right? So, you know, they're getting on that train at 11.45 that goes to the, or maybe even 11 o'clock that goes out into the suburbs and into the rural provinces, right? So you compare that to you know, a place like Fukuoka where you have a million people probably live within a very confined area, you know, maybe five kilometers, 10 kilometers. So everybody's within reach of everybody else. That's kind of the point I'm saying. So that not just applies to, you know, the airport, people, where people live, but the whole network, right? So it's a very concentrated network. Everybody knows everybody, you know, everything's there, you know, like that event space, that co-working space, that office, they're all very close. Whereas in Tokyo, it could be literally three hours apart, right? Yeah, it could be really far away. And that whole concept of just the convenience, I think from a convenience factor, like Fukuoka has just so many great points and so, so many great reasons to to be there, right? Whether it's the airport or just the convenience of the city itself, like going from one end to the other. I mean, how much walking did you and I do when we were there for those wow. couple of days? Oh, yeah. Uh, months worth if we were living in Tokyo. Did you get into a taxi? Yeah, I did, yeah. You did? I didn't. Yeah. But I when, I, when I got into the taxi, I realized I could have actually walked it. When I went from my place to your place by taxi, right. <laughs> I just got in the taxi. He drove, I don't know, 500 meters and I got out, right? Right. It's a little silly, though, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's fun. I mean, what do you think when people always bang on about the Silicon Valley, the Silicon Alley, the Silicon Glen of our country? You know, we're going to recreate this. Do they miss out that lifestyle thing? And in a way, you know, when people try and compare themselves to the valley, they often sell themselves short because, you know, it's the same with Thailand in a way, I suppose. It has something which Silicon Valley can never have. It's got a lifestyle thing going. And I wonder if that's kind of something they need to focus more on when they're sort of publicizing themselves to the world. Yeah, I mean, there's no way you can recreate. Look, I can't, re- I can't recreate Boston and Fukuoka, okay? And we can go back historically, and we may have t- spoken about this a little bit, right? There was this Route 128, which was like the the technology, it's called the Technology Highway or something, right? And EMC Squared was founded there, and Lotus was there, and some other big companies were founded there. And they used to make this case that it was really only because Harvard and Tufts and you know, Wellesley and Brandeis and all these great universities and MIT and all this stuff were there mm. and that could never get recreated. And then boom, there was Silicon Valley where there was Stanford and Berkeley and stuff like that. Right. But again, 
you don't want to necessarily recreate something out of the out of the blue. So what's happening in Fukuoka is actually not so related to the fact that you know Kyushu Daigaku, which is Kyushu University, is also there, mm-hmm. and yet. yet it doesn't have so much of an impact on what's going on there. What's really happened is, and it's grown organically, right? So let's talk a little bit about the people that we met when we were there. Yeah, yeah. Right, so we, um, we, you and I just kind of rocked up into this place that's called Growth Next Fukuoka, right? Right. So this, is would, the, this is the government place, right? Right, but this is the government place. That I wanted to talk about how the fact that it's a government building. It used to be, and you nailed it, because I thought it was one thing and you thought it was the other thing, but this was an old school. Right. I saw it straight away. It looks like my son's school. You see all the slipper racks. <laughs> it's a giveaway for all the kids, the slipper racks, as soon as you walk in. Yeah. Yeah, I just was not paying close enough attention to notice that, right? Um, but, you know, let's start with the fact that we, we also commented that it was a metaphor for the old and new, right? So yeah. out back, there was a pool that had been kind of neglected, right? So the yeah. water was still in it, and it was filled with, like, moss and green water. And yet inside... There were, there was like a whole startup community, right? It was mm-hmm. that's where Fukuoka Startup City is based. That's where Growth Next is based, and that building really is kind of. Would you say it's the nexus or the center of what's happening in the startup community in, in Fukuoka? Yeah, it's definitely a, a, a touchstone. Yeah, definitely, and yeah, I, I think so. I mean, considering that it's a government program, it's pretty damn good for what they've done there. I mean, you can just walk yeah. in and get free Wi-Fi. I mean, we just walked in and you could use the Wi-Fi in the, the common space downstairs. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we sat in a meeting room that was not regulated, right? So we could sit in there and, and do it. There was no password, was there, for the Wi-Fi? I don't think, I don't think, if there was, I don't remember it right. being anything that was, like there was no difficulty. We walked in, people said, sure, you can come in here and sit here. And there was everything you needed there to kind of, support a startup ecosystem in that building, right? There was a coffee right. shop, there was a maker space, which I took a picture of. Yep. And we just kind of, you and I just kind of, we sat in that little open space and then we walked around the building and literally every office that was there was some kind of tech company and some yeah. kind of startup company. Creative, yeah. It was, it's interesting. Did you did you sort of, you know, notice that nobody challenged us when we walked around? You know, we just two guys walking around the building. No, yeah. You know, you can imagine an office yeah. space in any other country, you know, where you need the passes and the keys and all that stuff, right? You know, even well, in Japan. Again, right? really, yeah, yeah. I mean, if I think about the co-working spaces, because essentially that's what that was, right? It was like a publicly sponsored co-working space, right? Right. We found, And we found out later, and we can talk about that too, that if you wanted to have an office in that building, and the government actually does encourage you to do that, it's very inexpensive. Yeah, wow. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, renting an office in that space, if what Hashimoto-san, and we'll talk about who Hashimoto-san is later, but if what Hashimoto-san said is true, and he would know because he's one of the poster children for just all the startups in Fukuoka, and one of the most sort of prominent people here, but if what he said is true, it's like $100 a month subsidized. Subsidized yeah. means you don't pay more than 10000 or 15000 yen a month, which is 100 to $150 a month. For a relatively decent office space, right? Like, how big do you, how big do you think that um, the office space was where Curate was? Oh, it was. You could get ten people in there if if you wanted to. If you could sort of easily. Square meters, do you think? It was how? more than fifty. It was more than fifty. Oh, yeah. square meters. Hundred square meters. And it had been really nicely renovated. Yeah, yeah, they probably had desk space for ten or twelve people in there. 
And I mean, if I look at what a co-working space costs, right for so ten desks, right? Yeah, but a friend of mine and I, we shared a co-working space. It was twenty-two thousand baht a month. That's six hundred dollars. So it was five times more expensive. Yeah, for what? For a fifth of the for, size. At the most, I mean, there was literally room for two desks in there, and, and we thought it was like, a, you know, a luxurious spot. And it was, a, it's a beautiful co-working space in the middle of town. It's, you know, there's nothing wrong with it, but again, nowhere near a transportation center, right? So it was very far away from the BTS in Bangkok, and it was, you know, five times the price. So yeah. that again was that again was really really good, and it was full, right? So there were a couple of empty rooms. These they were doing construction. But for the most part, the offices were filled with people, Japanese and foreigners, who were running their startup companies there. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? You you would wonder what that would be if it didn't have somebody to come along and say, "Right, we're going to create a space for all these startups here." You know, what have they what have they enabled? What have they created? Even in terms of like employment. You know, which is obviously the key thing for these government organizations, right? And tax revenues as well. You know, how different would that have been if all these startups had to go out and, you know, go and hustle themselves, go and find office space and so on? I mean, it's not that they can't do it, but they're going to be paying significantly more, right? Yeah, and, you know, at least, so two of the startups that we spoke to, right, Curate and New Lab, and New Lab really can't, be qualified as a startup anymore because it's been around for a few years and has they have 50 or 60 people in that office yeah um but the the office space that they have we asked them right without getting into the specifics of what it costs but it's at least half price if not more it's Mm -hmm. way less expensive than it would be in tokyo for sure yeah 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 i mean the new lab team rents an entire building i don't know what that would cost in just trying to think what that would cost in Bangkok for a building that size on a street like that. Yeah. It's at least what it costs there, right? I'm just trying to make a comparison so like we can understand, right? But again, that building has, he has 50 or 60 people there. Yeah. So from a cost perspective as well, it seems it seems really um, it seems it seems like a fair place to be, and it seems like a really reasonable place to live. Yeah. 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 And I'm, I don't want to. You know, talk politics. I'm not. No, I, I want to go there, but I, I'm sort of. You know, I'm. I'm not really. I'm not really long on seeing governments play like you know quite high profile roles in startup scenes. I like them to sort of get out the way, which is what they can do best, right? Rather, I than, agree with you. But I agree with you. When you see something like that, I kind of all right. Well, maybe you know, I'm not always right here. Maybe there is a way of doing it because you know sometimes governments can be very top down on this and create a PR opportunity more than anything else. But what they've done here, at least from what we've seen is very interesting. And I think that it's actually doing something fundamental, right? Which is making a change. Right. Right. So you can look at what, I mean, I I think every city that we're going to visit has the the governments there have sort of their own view on it. Right. And I think one of the things that, um, that Tom Brook, right. So Tom is the founder and the CEO of Curate said to us was, you know, what happened in Fukuoka grew up mostly organically, but because the mayor, Takashima-san, I think is his name, yeah. was the mayor of Fukuoka, who at the time he was elected originally, depending on who you believe, was the youngest ever there's oh, ever yeah. <laughs> A little back and forth between Yasmin and, and her business partner, um, Toma, yeah. right? 
They're the founders of Ikai. But they were going back and forth on, is he the still youngest? Is he still the youngest mayor? Is, was he the youngest mayor at the time? It doesn't really matter. But regardless, he was an innovator. And he said, look, if there's, this organic thing is happening here, let's get more support. And that more support, as you said, came from sort of a top-down view from the national government, from Abe-san himself, right, who was the prime mm-hmm. minister. And he said, yeah, we're going we're gonna to dub this the startup city, but it's more than just dubbing. What we're going to do is we're going to take the mayor – and do what most great cities do when they want to sort of change themselves. That's we're going to send you around the world and so you can find out exactly what's working best, what are best practices all over the world. And try to make this city a part of the global startup ecosystem. And I, and I think to a certain extent they, they've succeeded. Right. Right. And like you said, there's no government funding for startups. So you can get really, really over the top. And I think you can get too involved. And like you said, I don't want to talk about politics too much. But I do agree with you that you can do too much. We can make the case, or we can argue that, you know, Singapore is, the, is one of the one of the greatest startup cities, and one of the reasons why is because of all the capital and funding that's available there. But I think you can also make the case that that means that so many businesses get funded there that shouldn't get funded necessarily. Mm-hmm. Again, because there is too much capital, and a lot of it comes from the government providing liquidity there. Right. Let's just focus on what's going on here. So we sat in a room for a while. We talked to the CEO and uh, you know some of the senior execs from a company called Curate, right? So what is what does Curate do? Well, Curate is you know grew out of an agency business and a design business, right? That Tom founded, and he said, look, people are pu- publishing things to social media and they're publishing the platforms and they're doing this in a disparate way. Let's build a business around that that can help people sort of consolidate the way that they publish and manage their social media presence for enterprises. That's a potentially big business. And if you believe that the advertising business itself is going to get disintermediated because most even enterprise-sized advertisers, whether it's, you know, pick a pharmaceutical company, you know, pick a, pick a big consumer products company, they're just not happy with the service that they're getting from their advertising companies. They're going to want to manage a lot of that themselves. And if they don't have the expertise to manage each social media base on their own, and that's where Curate comes in and does that. And I think that the conversation that we had with that team about you know, why they were in Fukuoka, I think resonated really nicely with all of the other foreign teams that are here. Right. And what is that? What does that mean? Well, first of all, in the old days in Japan, right, when I first arrived in Japan, you needed to have a company like Morgan Stanley or Coca-Cola or Disney or one of the big pharmaceutical companies sponsor your visa here. And that was hard work. And it meant that if you weren't working for a multinational company and you were a foreigner, getting a visa, getting a work visa in Japan was hard. And that didn't really change up until, what, about 18 months ago. And that was specifically done to foster the growth of startups in Fukuoka and in Japan. So now they've they've gone out and recreated or remarketed a visa that they call a startup visa. It's actually called a startup visa. I mean, I know a lot of visas get called startup visas when officially they're not, right, when you look around the world. But this is actually a startup visa. Yeah, it is. And again, we'll get to Yasmin and Toma in a second because they were the first people to actually go through the process. And I thought that they're... There, the conversation we had with them about that process was interesting because it, again, shows something about Japan and in, in general, but Fukuoka in particular, mm. that's changed, at least from my perspective, as a long-term or previous long-term resident of Japan. 
and I think it really points to how the, the Japanese government on a local basis is really changing to sort of facilitate what's going on here. But I thought that um, when we were speaking to Tom Brook and with Alexa as well about, you know, is this a great startup city? I think Alexa's actually gone out and published something, which yeah. we which we published today or yesterday. I can't remember when. Yeah. Why but, I chose. Why she yeah. Chose, yeah. Chose, it, chose it, right? What was the title of that? Yeah, calling Fukuoka home, something like that. Why I chose Fukuoka. Yeah, something like that. Why I made Fukuoka. Fukuoka. Let me start again. It's like why I chose Fukuoka as my home or something like that. But it was a good right, article. But it was really, it was sort of a heartfelt, yeah, it was really a heartfelt you know, explanation of this is not just where I live. This is my home. And I think that one of the points that she was making, and I think that everybody that we talked to over the past couple of days actually made the same point, and that was, you can come to Fukuoka with any preconceived notion you like, but you won't leave. Hmm. And if you do leave, you won't leave with the same notion. And her point was, you know, I had no intention really of making Fukuoka my, my, the base for my life. But once I came here, everything that I wanted out of my life and all the sort of specific things that made a place a home to me were here. Hmm. And this resonated with all of the people that we spoke to, right? JP right. sort of gave us the same thing, like, how could you leave? It's so great here. But it was interesting right? that they, they were all came here almost by accident, that they didn't have any preconceived notions of what Fukuoka was, right? So they all landed there, loved it, and stayed. Yeah, so, and even um, and even Yasmin and Toma were, were saying our initial idea was to go to Tokyo, but right. the program that we had sort of had a, you know, the 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 sister city for our city in France was, was Fukuoka for some reason. Right which I, I didn't even get into that with them, but I thought that was really interesting. Um, and so we came here for school, and we just loved it. Yeah. And even after spending some time in New York, we said, okay, we're going to go back to Japan and build a business. Let's go do that in Tokyo. And then they looked at each other and said, why? <laughs> Let's go build that in Fukuoka. And, and that I thought was really interesting. Well, if you're running a business where you're not necessarily servicing a – you know, a fixed geography of clients in your local environment, right? Or most of your business is online. Why not? You know, why pay twice as much? I mean, you know, as a trader, we all know the benefits of arbitrage, right? You can you can benefit from the arbitrage of living somewhere where you're paying half the rent, having a better lifestyle. You know, you're, you're, everything we talked about, you're not two hours in commute every day. But, you know, you're customer base your market could be could be anywhere in asia it could be west coast of america it could be anywhere right so why yep. then choose to live in one of the most expensive cities in the world just because everybody else is and that's kind of what the point it is isn't it, of why fukuoka is interesting because so many people choose to live where everybody else does just because that's what everybody else does right rather than actually looking at it clinically and saying what is best for my lifestyle right yeah, and clinically, it's such a great word, right? So two out of the three startups or two out of the three companies that we talked to really are focusing on serving um, enterprises. And both of them said, look, if I want to talk to one of my big clients, or if I need to talk to them, I can get on a plane again because the airport is so accessible or because the Shinkansen is so accessible. I can get to Tokyo as fast as I need to. And all the money that I save on rent and on staff and everything else by being in Fukuoka means flying to Tokyo is just an, it's just like a going out to dinner expense. It's no, it doesn't add all this excess t 
time and energy and money mm. to my business plan, right? So it's again, it's really interesting, and and they're serving mostly um, enterprise clients. So you would think that they'd want to live in proximity to them. And what both of them told us was, we don't really need to be that close to our clients to serve them really well. Mm. You know, if we go up there once a month, that's more than enough. And then we get all the benefits of living in a great city where the government supports us but doesn't get in our way, where the national government supports the local government but doesn't get in its way either. It's just like it, – it just seems like the Goldilocks place to be. And that was the word really that came to mind to mm. me is like it's not too hot, not too cold. It's just right. Yeah. I mean if you consider – it was the Ikai guys, right? So Thomas and Yapmin yep. who were saying that they would go once a month up to Tokyo, as you said, spend a few days up in there servicing clients, come back home. You know, even if they went for the day, you could do a day trip, right? And Easily. Like you did. I mean, if you were to fly from center of Fukuoka to Tokyo, meet clients for the day in Tokyo, fly back home in the evening, probably not a lot different than commuting from, you know, out in the provinces into Tokyo for the day, right? Nah, not at all. And it's an hour and 40-minute flight, but it, I mean, it's actually an hour and 30 minutes in the air, right? So it's a, it's a simple flight. And, you know, my biggest problem today when I was trying to get from the airport back to where I'm staying was not necessarily just the transport. It was the fact that I had two pieces of luggage with me. Right. Right. So if I just had a backpack or a briefcase or a laptop with me, in other words, if I had just come here for business and I wanted to pop into Tokyo because Haneda's like literally like right on the outskirts of the city, I just want to pop in and see a couple of my enterprise clients have three or four meetings and then get back on the plane at seven o'clock at night. I could be back in my, I could be back in my home in Fukuoka at, you know, 9 o'clock. Yeah. Which is when I'd probably be home anyway. Exactly. And feeling the same. Yeah, and feeling exactly the same. And then I, if, it was a, if those were Friday night meetings, I'd wake up on Saturday and I'd go to the beach. <laughs> on the bike. On a bicycle. Yeah. Right. So, and that was the other, that was, sorry, go ahead. Andrew. So the question then, I mean, that checks all the boxes, but does that qualify as a good startup city? Because that's what we're doing, right? We're going out and checking out all these startup cities in Asia. Does, can it stand shoulder to shoulder with the other startup cities or is it kind of just an outlier, a bit of a, you know, an interesting addition to the, the list? What, what do you think? Would you qualify as a startup city? Yeah. So I was trying to think about, you know, what are the criteria Right. And you mentioned some of them when we first started talking. So what's one of them? You know, is there a community there that's supportive of startups? Right. The answer to that is yes. Right. So again, what would that be? What would that be though? Would that be, uh, what is a community supportive? Does that mean a cultural thing or does he mean, you know, actually having infrastructure and so on? uh, So there's, what, what, what does it mean? One of the questions I asked, right, because I was curious, is what's the Wi-Fi like everywhere? And we, yeah. Everywhere we went, there was Wi-Fi available. So the laws and the regulations in Japan, not just in Fukuoka, changed a couple of years ago and made the possibility of having Wi-Fi ubiquitous um, much easier. And that's actually started to happen. So I think that from a connectivity standpoint, I think that box gets ticked. Okay. But when I say a supportive community, I mean, are there any other startups there? Mm. Right. So I think that's really necessary, like running a company in a vacuum. I think this gets back to my little thing that like nobody succeeds alone. And I think that's true at every level of life. Right. And that's true in your business, too. So if you're just out there on your own trying to build a company in the startup space, 
you need to hire engineers, you need to hire like all these people, whether it's marketing or UI and UX designers, right? If th- those people aren't around, mm. it just it just creates friction for you. But I got this. I got the real sense from from the people to whom we spoke here that there was a community, and that this that the that the same sense that I get in Bangkok, where the startups actually support each other, where the pie is getting bigger and not getting smaller, right? And people are not sort of taking the piece of an existing pie, but just building a bigger pie. Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean when I say, is there support here? Right. And, and I think that's true as well. And is there? does the government sort of do stuff but not get in the way? Yeah. Could they do more? Maybe. Maybe, right? I mean, I think the one thing that was one of the things that was missing – was maybe a co-working space that was running for business. Now, we know that there were, like even New Lab basically had a floor up on the seventh floor, right? That cafeteria, anybody can go there. Mm-hmm. The doors aren't locked. There's Wi-Fi up there. There are games up there. There's a cafe up there. Anybody can go there. And they were super welcoming. Like, Oh, yeah. Were there more helpful people? Like, no. <laughs> and, and Curate was super helpful as well, right? And Ikai, so Thomas and Yasmin were helpful. The new lab team that just went over and above the yep. call of duty to make us feel ridiculously welcome. And they don't have to because they're already big and a vibrant company. They don't need to do anything. And yet they were so great. And that, you know, that I think comes from the top, from Hashimoto-san. Mm-hmm. But I thought that, so that community is there, but there's no sort of for business um, co-working space which I think is, I think it's good to have a few of those co-working spaces because once you're a startup and you graduate, for lack of a better term, from you know, whatever sort of the government place is, hmm. you want to go out, maybe pay a little bit extra and be at sort of the next stage of development and having that space there, those co-working spaces, I think is the place to do that. And I think you also mentioned, right, it didn't seem to be, and we don't know, right, we don't know everything, but we know more just by being there. There didn't seem to be any like acceleration spaces, mm. right? And I think that points to one other question. And I think those those spaces, you know, whether you believe in the fact that like any individual company can be accelerated or not, and we can do, you know, we can talk for hours about that too. But I think just having people that are interested, you know, again, that's another part of the ecosystem is. Are there people out there that aren't so self-interested necessarily, right? That aren't predatory about being an accelerator. So they don't just want to take fees from you and provide you services and yet have no interest in whether you succeed or not. But real acceleration, meaning, you know, if there are three companies and they all need accounting or they all need, a, you know, some kind of, even it's a, a shared printer, right? Just kind of some kind of shared services. We didn't see that. And if we did, that's our miss. But yeah. if we did, then tell us. Tell us where it is, and we'll go back, or I'll go back, and we'll both go back and just figure it out. But we didn't see that. And I think the one other thing that was missing, and I think that's just only because of the maturity, meaning the time that the ecosystem's been around, not the desire for people there to run mature businesses, I think is the financing. Yeah. Do you disagree with that? Yeah. We do know people who invest in Fukuoka, but it's – uh, you know, compared to other cities, obviously it's still very small. You know, the amount of people involved in that scene. But isn't that just a matter of time? You know, that it's kind of now people have heard about Fukuoka. Apart from the people that live there, now people will come and look at it and say, "Well, maybe there's opportunities here." You know, and maybe kind of add something because maybe they they don't want to do it in 
Tokyo, or they don't want to do it in Singapore because of all the reasons you mentioned, right? Yep. Yep. So I think the biggest question for me is, and I think this is the way funding starts, right? So it's either venture capitalists, and there's not a big VC community there, right? Or it's, you know, it's angel investors, and we didn't see a big angel investment community there, but maybe we missed that, so fair enough. But the other thing is, as the startups there mature and start like accelerating their revenue, that now you're going to have successful founders. And in general, when founders start reinvesting in their own ecosystem, hmm. then I think you've built something really sustainable. Does that make sense? Yeah. Can I ask a stupid question? As a finance guy, you can put me straight on this. But yeah. take a place like Fukuoka, and I don't want to mention any names because it was sort of shared with us in you know, in private, that you could have a company in Fukuoka who, rather than take angel investment, would simply go to a bank and borrow the money because I can get a 1% credit, you know, that's not a bad deal compared to getting the money from an angel investor, right? So people may argue they don't need angel investors when money is effectively almost free in a city like that. Yeah, I guess the question is, are you generating enough revenue, right? So again, I when I lived in Tokyo, I, I bought some land and built a house there, went out and got a 25-year loan and paid 1.8 or 1.9% interest, right? So yeah, money was money was relatively free. Um, but the question is, can everybody go get a loan, right? In other words, what's harder, going out and convincing some, because we, we, we spent a lot of time talking about this, right, you and I, and that is... Is it harder to get a loan from a bank that has sort of a traditional vetting process? Yeah. Or is it harder to convince a seed stage investor in a slightly, I'll say slightly, right, or in a maturing environment to to invest in an experiment? Yeah. Right. And again, without naming companies, the company that told us that they could get bank financing, they kind of had enough revenue made. And maybe they were just so good at their business originally that when they needed money to grow, they were at a stage where they could actually go to a bank and say, you know, I'm making X amount of money every year, yeah. which which backs into a certain amount of money every month. And I don't want to dilute myself from an equity standpoint. I'd rather just borrow money like I'm a regular business. You know, the fact that I'm in tech is incidental to the fact that I want to borrow money. Right. So a startup at an early stage, right? So a lot of startups do this with convertible notes and they borrow money under different, um, mm-hmm. under different terms. But for me, I don't think it's the best way to fund a company at its earliest stages, right? If nothing else, it, because banks themselves don't understand necessarily what a startup is, right? And the companies that we spoke to, or one of the companies that we spoke to that does get, that did get bank financing, they were at a different stage. So I don't think, and, right. and again, no, no disrespect intended, but I don't think it's a, an equivalent to, you know, a company that I that I advise in um, in Bangkok's. I would never recommend for them to go out and get bank financing ever, even if it was cheap, because when you're funding an experiment with equity, the people that are lend that are that are investing in you kind of tend to believe that they're spreading risk around. Right. So let's say six out of ten or seven out of ten of the investments that, that they make in a seed stage will fail. So they're writing some of it down initially. And a bank's just not going to do that. Mm. Right. The bank's going to expect to get paid back. And in Japan, 
here's the other really interesting thing to me in Japan like in America you can just declare bankruptcy yeah right and it's not so cavalier you don't just say ah, I'm just bankrupt because there are sort of social factors associated with declaring bankruptcy but in Japan it's really punitive yeah. unless something's changed yeah so we talked so about you, that before right yeah yeah we, we did actually and if you if you borrow money and you can't pay it back and then you end up going bankrupt yeah like that could be a debt for life well this is where they disappear off the map isn't it yeah individuals because of the shame and it's a debt that gets passed onto your you know your relatives right right so i mean i i don't want to veer into this but like there are, you know plenty of people plenty of people you know it's, at one point japan had the highest suicide rate in in the world and i mm. mean part of that was you know the pressure of work and stuff but the other side of it was you know if you failed there's no outlet yeah. And there's no nobility in the failure here, right? In the United States, at some level, it's a badge of honor. Yeah, I did three exactly. startups, three failed, the fourth one made me a billionaire kind of thing. But in Japan, even today, you don't really have that that choice. If you fail once, you probably failed forever. And digging yourself out of that failure is just in relative terms, right? We yeah. always talk in relative terms. It's harder. Well, that, that's a definite plus then for a place like Fukuoka because – you know, if you were in a place like Tokyo and you were graduating Tokyo, growing up around Tokyo, and this is what we talked about before, you know, why go and work for a startup when you could go and work for a Goldman Sachs or you could go and work for a Sony or a National or Panasonic, whoever, NEC, whereas in Fukuoka, I guess you've got less choice, right? It's less of a, a thing to go and work for a startup because, you know, well, maybe there aren't those kind of companies there, those sort of blue chip escalators is the you know the escalator path that these graduates take right yep. they go to the yep. right school they go to wasada they go to you know Keio. tokyo daigaku whatever yeah all those and yeah. they're guaranteed right pretty much i don't know in Fuku i mean it's like they, tokyo doesn't i mean japan doesn't really have a class system but it's all kind of in that education you know passed down through generations isn't it that's how they it do is. it i mean as it they is. do in this as they do in the east coast of america right yeah, and it translates. It translates later into the company that you work for, right? So, like, there is there is a lot of um, what's the right word? You know, there's a, there's a big benefit to working for this cachet, right? To working for Toshiba, working for Sony, working for Nomura, working for Mitsubishi Bank, working for Mitsubishi right? All these companies, there is, you know, there is cachet associated with it. Yeah, and. I don't know what it's like in Fukuoka. Do, do, are they all down there? I can't imagine there's much of a... I mean, if you were, if you did want to go and work for in investment banking or one of the big banks in Japan or the trading companies, you would go to Tokyo, right? You'd do it there. So I, I guess so. it attracts those kind of people, right? Yeah, I think if you're that ambitious, you're going to want to go do that in Tokyo. Um, but I think what's happening in Fukuoka is different, right? It's missing a couple of pieces just on the financing side. It'll be interesting to see how that grows up, right? Mm. Because that's got to be like the missing piece. And so far, the government, while they give the you know the sort of subsidized rent and stuff, and that building was great. Like I would put an office in that building. We, you and I talked about it, right? Like there's no reason why you can't have an office in what was used to be what was it Daimyo Shogaku? Yeah sort of centrally located was it Shogako primary, primary school yeah. Yeah, yeah um 
there's no reason why you couldn't have an office there. And I'll tell you what, if you're close enough to the university and you can get some interns and stuff from Kyushu Daigaku, you're really rocking, I think, as well. And I think what these other companies that are that are there have done is they've been able to attract some foreign talent who want to live in Japan, don't want to live in a big city, but and want to be near the ocean and want to live a good lifestyle, right? They want to bike around and work at a kick-ass, excuse my language, company. Mm. I think they're starting to see like that type of stuff there. And let's not let's not forget, right? So who was it that said to us? Was it Tom? I wanted to talk about this concept, right, of Kodawari that yeah. Tom. Tom, yeah, Tom Burke, right. So how do you explain what that is? I mean, he, he did a great job, and I don't want to ruin it, because he he was so passionate about, like, you know, it's the anti-design thinking. And <laughs> That's right. You know, to, to kodawaru, right, the verb itself, I believe it means to, to, to reject, right? Kodawari mashita. No, I, I don't want to do that kind of thing. But kodawari as a concept means... It's like this pursuit of perfection. Right. It's like an like, obsession, isn't it? Yeah, it's like it being obsessively perfectionist. And no matter how good you are, kind of always wanting to do better. And I think he said right. to us on, on tape, so I'll repeat it as well. Like, Japanese people can sometimes get very disappointed when they when they veer outside their own realm because they don't see the same dedication to perfection mm. the obsession with perfection and there are great things that are developed outside of japan obviously i mean everywhere in the world has its own sort of you know ups and downs right but that whole concept of kodawari drives the startups actually as well and i think that was part of the point that tom was making is that if you exist in an environment where there's this constant striving for perfection and the idea that you could work on something for 70 years and yet there's still work to do. The whole concept of Kodawari is just another thing that makes Fukuoka a great place to build a company from scratch because it means no matter what level of success you reach, you're just not satisfied. But you're satisfied, you're, you're, your lack of satisf- satisfaction is different than it is in the rest of the world in the sense that you're not, you're not mad, you're not really dissatisfied, you're just striving for more and more perfection you want to get closer to whatever that ideal state is and what the concept of kodawari says is you're never going to get there yeah so just keep trying never satisfied i mean it's very much dovetailing into the japanese idea of kaizen which was very you know that i mean that was a big management speak in the 80s wasn't it when everybody was trying to learn from japanese and their success story that kaizen of evolution Right, but I think isn't isn't the point that Tom was trying to make was that you cannot, you can't necessarily teach the concept of kodoare, and that you really have to live. In other words, you can't take that and export it to Silicon Valley as design thinking, right? As design thinking, yeah. yeah. And top, I thought he made a really, He was so eloquent in his explanation of that. I'm never going to be able to live up to what he said, but I'm trying to just make the point. And we you and I talked about this on that day. It's like. How do we explain to everybody else that concept that he that he was trying to explain to us, which was, you, you know, and we talked about it that day too, right? There was that whole movie with the sushi guy Jiro, right? Who was like, yeah, "Look, yeah. I've for seventy years, but I still don't feel like I'm perfect." It, it, it became a slightly trite, right? So I don't want to use that as yeah. an example, but that's the thing that people are going to know. Well, let, let's put it into the context of ramen. 
I think that's a great one because, you know, here's the thing. Everybody talks about sushi. Oh, and you can get great sushi now in California or whatever. But it's the ramen that I feel. I mean, if you go anywhere in the world, I mean, I can get great sushi in a lot of cities in the world. It may not be as good as what I could get in Tokyo, but great sushi. Yep. But here's the thing with ramen is that I can't find, it's very, very rare to find ramen outside of Japan, which is any way near that kind of kodawari level that you'll find in a place like Fukuoka or even in Japan, right? But take Fukuoka where the ramen is fantastic. Yeah. And it comes down to the guy making that stock and he's, you know, he's done that for like 20 years and he's been boiling that huge vat with all the stuff in it overnight, 24 hours. And that's what he's been doing, right? And it's just yep. like, wants to improve it every day. And I don't think people get that outside of Japan, do they? That sort of, that whole attitude towards, okay, so the ramen's about the stock, right? It's not about the ingredients, not about the men or anything like that, right? So I kind of feel like that attitude towards, that really sort of sums it up. Because sushi's the big stuff that we can understand, but go to something real simple. Like you talk about design thinking, you know, trying to export this idea to Silicon Valley, but it's kind of what people do on a daily basis every day around them in the culture of Japan. Like Japanese people eat ramen every day. They know what it tastes like. They know what they're not going to be satisfied with, right? They do. And that, do. that's a real insight into how it actually happens. It's not pretentious in any way, is it? It's just kind no, of, no. they know. No, and who was it? Was it JP who kind of got me saying this that whole day that we spent there? It's like, that's a thing. <laughs> well, it is a thing. <laughs> It is a thing, though. I'm not saying that to be sarcastic. That is a thing. It you, really is. You mentioned you mentioned a thing, which is is starting a business in, uh, you know, anybody starting a business in Fukuoka. What do you think of if you were a fund? Like, I, I know you're not a big fan of 500 startups, but let's say you were a startup fund based in Asia. Yep, could be Jungle Ventures, could be anybody. Would you? go to Fukuoka? Do you think those guys could have success there? Was there enough I, for them? Yeah, I would. As a matter of fact, I think, I think there's something, um, I, I think there's like a secret jewel. And I think part of that secret is, is, is actually taking place in Fukuoka. And I think if you are a venture capitalist in Japan and you're not looking at what's going on down there and monitoring it really closely and looking at the companies there, I think you're going to end up missing something. Remember, if you're in Tokyo, if you're looking at only the startup companies in Tokyo, then you're missing an entire sort of class of companies that are getting developed in Fukuoka that are that are developing sort of organically, right? There's no no one's forcing people into this. And you're getting people that are choosing to be there for a reason and for the long term. You can make the case, particularly for foreigners, that there are mercenaries, that there are foreign mercenaries in, in Tokyo, but there are no mercenaries in Fukuoka. Mm. And if I'm a if I'm a fund, if I'm a venture capitalist fund, and, and I'll say there is one of the VCs in Japan, the B Dash team, has done this really well. Every year they do something called B Dash Camp, and they do this big thing, and they have a big conference, the B Dash conference. And I've been to one or two of them, and every year they pick a different city. Mm. And I have to I'll have to go back and check because I didn't do this before we got on the phone, but. I would bet that they've already done one in Fukuoka, and if they haven't, that they would. But I attended one that they did in Kyoto, and Kyoto's not a city that's known for its as a hotbed of startups either. But there were there were quite a few people there. I'd say a few thousand people there, hmm. and they put on a great thing. But their whole concept again is, yeah, they're very Japan focused. But what they do do is they say it's not just Tokyo; it's the whole country. 
And I think if I am a venture capitalist and I'm interested in investing in companies in Tokyo, now I, I mean in Japan, now I have to go to Fukuoka and I have to find out what's there because the mix of companies that are going to be there, again, are people that are there because they want to live there and have a lifestyle there. They're not just there because, again, being a startup is like the new, new thing which you can get caught up in in a place like Tokyo. Yeah. So yeah, we'd definitely be looking at it. Is there enough for them there? There isn't, but if you go to... There isn't yet, right? But again, it's a chicken and egg thing. If you wait until there's enough, you're going to miss the big opportunities, right? It's like it's like go back and look at the responses. We always go back to the same few companies. Go back to the same, you know, responses that Uber got when it first started. Uh, taxis, regulations, too complicated, never going to work. Come back to me when you have traction. But by the time you have traction, it's too expensive. Yeah, it's not really, but it feels too expensive for most investors because again. If I said to you, I want you to invest in Uber when it's a billion-dollar company, you're like, I'm never going to five times my money, so I'm not going to invest at a billion dollars too expensive. And yet now it's worth $70 billion, so you could have 70 times your money. Mm. And so remember, being expensive is relative, but most people will cancel out their interest when it seems like there's too much other interest. I, I think if you want to start looking at companies in Fukuoka, you start doing it now. You, there may not be like the same breadth and depth that there is in other places, but you just don't know what you're going to find. And because the people there like have a different view on starting their own companies, you could end up with amazing things. Like the curate team seems really good, yeah, and yeah. you'll never be able to invest in New Lab because it's already too big and too strong. And yet, they're, they're, most of their clients are outside of Japan, so it's a very international company. They have offices. This is public knowledge all over the world. They have an office in New York. No, most people don't know that. Mm-hmm. Right? You can go down and talk to Hashimoto-san and say, let me invest in your company. You don't know what kind of answer you're going to get. But again, once everybody's interested, it it's, could be too late. Mm-hmm. If you want to get in early and get in when like it's really nascent, I would definitely look at Fukuoka. And You, know, you and I talked about it too. Yep. I would think about opening up an office there. Yeah, yeah. At those prices, wow. Yeah, and just with those resources and that support from the rest of the ecosystem, I think it's a really, it's a compelling story. Yeah, especially, I mean, if there was an element of the startup that was uh, from abroad as well, foreigners, it certainly adds something of interest with Fukuoka because I guess one of the reasons there aren't more Japanese startups upping sticks from Tokyo and moving to Fukuoka is because of, you know, families and all those kind of things. Sure. But, you know, if you move to Japan, so let's say you came to Japan from outside, and there's a lot more people coming to Japan these days just as tourists and checking it. And it's on the map now for people, but yep. it's also a living option now because it's getting easier and cheaper as well. I mean, if you came from outside, the default choice is Tokyo, right? But why? Why choose that when, you know, if you're in tech, here's an option, right? And if that's the case, then you're going to start seeing this polarization of talent right or not polarization but sort of this talent gathering at that point there's going to be a flashpoint isn't it like you're talking about which is going to be before people can actually say that oh this is good value now it's got to be those who are a bit more aggressive on the investment side maybe can take a few more risks and move to a small place like that and say hey look you know there's something really happening down here maybe it's happening already but you know as a place it's kind of gathering a bit of momentum right yeah. Uh, the next two, three years are going to be really interesting. And that first fund who's going to move in there from outside of Japan, wow. I mean, they could even relocate. 
an office there or have they said right we need to set up an office in japan you know yeah. Or, yeah, or like why isn't like why isn't there a 500 startups office or a satellite office why aren't there three people sitting in fukuoka looking at startup companies there or mentoring exactly. companies there or doing all their programs there Somebody has to do this, right? And let's just back up a little bit. I li- like to use that terminology. Let's just think about what's San Francisco, right? Because we talk about Silicon Valley today, okay? But let's think about what San Francisco was like 15 years ago. Remember, when I was at, when I was at you know, Goldman, we had massive clients, institutional clients, right? Barclays Global Investors had, was based in San Francisco. We used to go there all the time. And I'm telling you, back then, San Francisco was not what it was today. Nobody was dying to live there. People were, the real estate prices were not exploding. There was none of this stuff there. And if you had said, oh, I'm going to go start a company in San Francisco, people would have just looked at you like, huh? Right. Full like, of bums. Okay. <laughs> yeah, like, okay, but why? But then Silicon Valley itself actually started leaking into San Francisco. You know, he had a few startups there and now the whole thing's just on fire and I, there's nothing stopping that from happening anywhere else in the world or you can listen to the vcs there but they're all very myopic when they say oh this can only happen here sure maybe it can only happen there for the next like five years and for the previous five or ten years but you can't tell me that what's happening in shenzhen and shanghai and then why not fukuoka or any other place in the world can be the hotbed for startups right mm. on a per capita basis you know, there are more billion-dollar startups funded in Sweden than anywhere else in the world, or maybe it's the second biggest place. But still, like, you want to get to a place that's nascent. And I think if you're a fund and you're a Japan-based fund and you're not looking at what's going on in Fukuoka, you're missing something. Right. Fantastic. And here's the, I want to do the, the math at some point with you on this, but I'm sure somebody can help us out. They can tweet us at Asia Tech Pod. If you had, like, a design team of four or five people, English-speaking, in Asia... Now, where would you base them? Well, Fukuoka has to be near the top now. I mean, if if they were working primarily online, servicing clients in a not any kind of location dependent area, right? Yep. Four or five people in a design team, creative stuff. They could be programmers, English speaking. So I'm not talking about outsourcing to a team in Vietnam type thing. But you know, you wouldn't put them in Singapore. You know, you wouldn't even choose anywhere, any of the other big cities, right? In Fukuoka, you could get half price rent, access to English-speaking talent coming from abroad, all over the world, easy visas, government support, maybe even government grants. It's not bad, is it? No, not really. And and to boot, it's a great lifestyle. I mean, I'll end on this only because I thought it was really fascinating, and maybe it was Tom who said this. Right, he said. He said, if you if you if you're Italian and you go to New York, you can you may be able to get good Italian food, but you're not going to get super great Italian food. He said the one thing about Japan and in general and Fukuoka in particular as well is that you, the food here itself, Japanese food is fabulous, but it's not just that. It's every type of food that's here is so good. Mm. Right, so if you want to go get a burger, you'll get like the best Kodawari influenced burger. The Italian food's going to be great. The French food's going to be great, and the be- like those lifestyle benefits are just you-, you can't calculate their value. Yeah, it'd be great to get some feedback. If you're based in Fukuoka, if you have experience with Fukuoka, you can tweet us at Asia Tech Pod. You can catch us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Asia Tech Podcast. Sign up to our newsletter if you want to find out where we're going next. Next week, we are in, Michael? 
We're in Shanghai. Shanghai. That's going to be an interesting comparison, isn't it? It's like polar opposites. <laughs> well, he's talking about a massive population, and we don't know. We can't comment on what the quality of life is like. We're just yeah. surmised. No idea. But yeah, they're two different places for sure. And I'm fascinated. I'll be so looking forward to what we're going to be doing in Shanghai. We can talk. We'll talk a little bit about that next Tuesday as well. Oh yeah, super pumped. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.